I know that Ephesians is the favourite book of many Christians. It's both inspiring and practical. In the opening passage today, we have the wonder of Jesus. And we're going to look at all six chapters of Ephesians over the next few months. Uh, The letter is split into two parts. The first three chapters focus on God and his plan of salvation through Jesus. The last three chapters look at how we are to live as individuals and as the church in the light of God's saving love for us. Uh, I want to make a couple of preliminary comments and then I'm going to spend most of today looking at the 14 verses we've heard uh, read today. Uh, And I'll touch on two issues that quite a few Christians today find challenging. The first is predestination. The idea that before creation, God chose believers for inclusion in his holy family. And the second is that it appears that a fundamental part of God's purpose in bringing us into relationship with him is that we praise him for his glory. Praise being saying good and true things about a person. Why does God want us to do that? Isn't it a bit needy or egocentric? My first preliminary comment is that a majority of biblical scholars today do not think that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. They suggest instead that one of his followers wrote it as if it was a letter from Paul. This is called pseudepigraphy, and there's a fair bit of that in the first century. These scholars suggest that the people in the early churches who received this letter would have known that and therefore not considered it a forgery. They used it because they saw it as a reliable source of information about God and his plans. And modern biblical scholars are not suggesting we should chuck the letter away, just not include it in the collection of letters of Paul. But for what it's worth... I side with the majority, a minority, who see it as a letter from the Apostle Paul. The differences in language and emphasis from his other letters can be explained by the subjects he chooses to discuss and the context in which the letters are written. If I write you a letter telling you of my cycling holiday in Tasmania 40 years ago, it's going to have quite different words and thoughts and themes than if I tell you about my recent visit to the Torres Strait for the coming of the light. The second preliminary comment is that the earliest copies we have of this letter do not say that it was written to the saints in Ephesus. Well, uh, the way that we understand that uh, is that it was probably written as a circular letter to some of the early churches in Western Turkey, which would have included Ephesus. Uh, which was a very significant city uh, in the region and a place where Paul had spent a fair bit of time. So when we say Ephesians, it certainly included the church in Ephesus, but it also included a broader range of churches in Western Turkey. The words in Ephesus may have been added a little bit after it was originally written. But this helps us, uh, as we do not have to filter out stuff that may have been peculiar to one church. And we can see it as a letter of general relevance to the early churches and 
all people who want to know about Jesus and his church. Yes, it was probably written in the 60s by Paul when he was in jail in Rome, but it's a letter of universal application to us all. The opening is conventional. The author identifies himself by name, Paul, and his role. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus, one chosen and commissioned by Jesus to tell people of the good news that is Jesus. Paul tells us he acts not because he thinks it's a good idea, although he probably does, but by the will of God. Like Jesus, he speaks with divinely ordained authority. The early churches would have known of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus called him to serve him, and this letter is part of that service. Paul writes to the saints, to holy ones. This was a title that applied to everyone whose trust was in the Lord Jesus because that trust had made them right with God and acceptable in his sights. And therefore, they are Holy, just as each one of you whose trust is in Jesus is holy and therefore a saint. Saint Ducky, Saint Leone, Saint Betsy, Saint Ray, Saint Julie, Saint Andrew. All saints. It was only later that the church and today the Eastern Orthodox and Roman churches refer to people who are particularly pious as saints. Biblically speaking, in the eyes of God, all believers are saints. This does not tarnish the name saint, but shows us just what an amazing and effective thing was done by Jesus dying for our sins, so we could be holy in God's sight. Don't be embarrassed that you are a saint, but praise God that that is how he sees you because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice for you. And if on this cold July morning, with all that's going on around you and hiding behind our masks, you don't particularly feel like a saint, I hope you will by the end of this service. Because I think we can, and you should, if you listen to what Paul has to say about God and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. Paul greets the saints with a prayer that God give them and you his grace and peace. These are both massively inclusive terms. All that God does in this world is an expression of his grace. It's his free gift which includes his creative and sustaining power, his gift of salvation, his making us, sharing his likeness with us, um, his uh, gift of salvation for us. And through his grace comes peace with God. Shalom, peace, prosperity, thriving to the full, all the free gift of God. This is what Paul wishes for his initial audience and through them for us, all made possible by the power and goodness of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' position and title 
as Christ get mentioned three times in the first two verses and 15 times in the first 14 verses. It's a big deal. Despite the casual blasphemy we so often hear on the streets and on TV, there is no more significant and wonderful news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's saving King. Jesus has not only a position of power and goodness, but is God's means of salvation and restoration and transformation and hope. For without Jesus as the Christ, human life will be only as humans make it. And we will only ever be what we make ourselves. But with Christ, with Jesus as the Christ in the world, we will be as Jesus will make us. And we will be as Jesus will remake each one of us. And this is an unbelievably hopeful start to the letter. But how is this possible? Paul explains it is possible because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing missing in God's plans for us. None of us misses out on anything that we need. With God, there is no FOMO, fear of missing out, because God has already determined in his love and mercy to bless us with everything we need to be the people he wants us to be. Which leads us to praise God, which is the overwhelming theme of this sermon today. We are made to know God and to praise him. Reasons that I'll explain a little bit later. Now we get to an area which worries quite a few people. Paul says at verse 4, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Uh, Don't be put off by the apparently gender-specific term son. In those days, special privileges attached to son. And Paul is saying that all believers, male and female, receive their privileges from God through Christ. There is equality in God's plans for his holy family. Equality for men and women as people who have the status of son in God's family. By adoption into his home, uh, heavenly family with all the rights and privileges of his loved children. How can we get our heads around that? Before the creation of the world, God chose past tense. Not contingent on what we turn out to be or what we do or what happens to us. Way back, the creator God chose some to be holy and blameless in his sight. How does that work? As I said, this has given people of good conscience all sorts of problems for many centuries. How do I know if I was chosen? How do I know if I was predestined? What happens if I wasn't? Why do some people get chosen and others not? On what basis? Is there anything we can do about it? Don't we have a say in it? 
And we can't, and can't we freely say thanks, but no thanks. I don't have an answer to all those questions, but I do have a way through them, which works for me and I hope will work for you. First, remember that Paul is writing to saints, ones who are faithful to Christ Jesus. He's talking to people who have been chosen and predestined. He's not talking to or about people who may not be saved. This is just like Romans 8, where similar ideas are discussed. He's saying these things by way of assurance to people who have already given their lives to Jesus. And second, I can say without any doubt, if this matters to you, if you really want to be among the saints who are holy and blameless in his sight, you are. That's the way that faith works. And that is what trust sounds like. If it matters to you that you be saved and you would like to think that Jesus has died for you, for your sins, so that you are right with God, he has. And you are right with God. The references to predestined and chosen are never used to exclude people who want to be included. Never. I know there are a whole range of issues I haven't dealt with, like, are some people really excluded forever? And what does it mean for an eternal being like God to do something before, when by definition he is the same at every moment in time? And there are statements in passages like 1 Timothy 2 that God desires that all be saved. And surely if God desires something, it must happen. And in Philippians 2, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So does everyone get a second chance? Or as many chances as they need, even after death? Some say so. They're called universalists. Salvation is for everyone. Unfortunately, I don't have time to deal with those issues now, but I'm going to, I'm actually doing a, a big study on this very issue at the moment, and I'll let you know where I end up. But can I say, I don't think we can expect to get our heads around all God's plans and ways. Some of us want to see the complete picture before we will even accept a good part of it. If some are told that they have been chosen for inclusion in his family, does that necessarily mean that some who want to be included miss out? I don't think so. When we look at the moon, we see only one side, but we still believe the moon exists. We don't have to see the dark side of the moon to believe that the moon exists or there is a side that we can see and participate in and enjoy. Even though The Dark Side of the Moon is one of my favourite albums. Anyway, the message here is clear. If you love and trust Jesus and it matters to you that you are chosen and predestined to be part of God's eternal family, then you are. And if you're not sure... 
All you need to do is ask God for the faith to trust him. And it will be yours. There's no way he's going to hold back from giving you what you ask for, if it is right relationship with him. Do it and and see how it fits. And either very quickly or gradually over time, you will own these words of assurance. And you will know that you are safe with God. And you will join with the saints in praising his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us through the one he loves. One thing I haven't mentioned is that verses 3 to 14, which appear in most English Bibles as two paragraphs and at least eight sentences, are probably one long stream of consciousness sentence in the original Greek. 202 words. And I say probably because the Greeks didn't use punctuation at that stage and just wrote all the words together in capitals. slide uh, which showed you uh, a very early Greek manuscript where they just basically have all the letters in capitals with no punctuation Uh, and scholars have had to work out sort of what the words are and where the sentences are and what punctuation we might use given our current conventions but the point is that this is just one long stream of consciousness and if you've been uh, at other churches at other times uh, you may have heard a sermon on practically every sentence or every phrase. Uh, and that's fine, but you sort of, then week after week after week, you're sort of just building up and only just, you know, after eight weeks or nine weeks, getting to the end of the first 14 verses. There's so much in it. But I don't think that's the way Paul intends it. Paul intends it to just get the vibe. And the vibe is that this is really, really good news and news that should bring you to praise God. Paul doesn't get... He doesn't pause. He just keeps going. Uh, And uh, he says that uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. We are redeemed from the consequences of sin in our lives by Jesus' blood, by his sacrificial death for us. We're bought out of slavery to sin and we have all that we need. We have forgiveness. We can't undo our sins. We can't make them right. We can't work our ways out of the hole that we dig for ourselves. But Jesus just stands at the top of that hole and and reaches his hand down and says, Here, take my hand and let me lift you up. Paul knew this seemed strange to his first audience, Jews who were steeped in the need to comply with the law and pagans who had their own systems of sacrifices and duties. Paul freely admits that God's grace is in Jesus in Jesus is beyond comprehension. But he says, in Jesus we find all the wisdom and knowledge we need. Grab hold of that hand 
and hold on. And we will, and he will make known every mystery of his will to the extent that we need to know. And then we're ready to take our place in his newly envisaged world, transformed by the sacrificial death of Jesus. Where there is life after death, where there is resurrection, where is, there are all the benefits that flow from knowing God. All God's plans revealed over human existence and human hopes are fulfilled in Jesus, who brings all things in heaven and earth together under one head, Christ Jesus. This is our inheritance as sons, sealed with the Holy Spirit, being in us as evidenced by our faith. If you have faith in Jesus, then you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And you can be absolutely sure that God is in you and will bring all these blessings to you. Paul says in Jesus, everything works and it works for a purpose that those of us who put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Uh, But this creates a a problem for some of us, for we don't like people who seek praise for their own glory or satisfaction. We don't like people telling us how good they are, how they are rich or successful because they're smarter or harder working than us. They seem inauthentic. We like our heroes to be modest, unassuming. We like Ash Barty. We like Jesus. We need to pause and remember that God does not need our praise. He is entirely self-sufficient. He always was and will always be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, whether we praise him or not. And all that exists owes its existence to God. So no one can add anything to God. He is entirely self-sufficient. Therefore, God... God's zeal to seek his own glory and to be praised by humans is not because he needs to shore up some weakness or compensate for some deficiency. He may seem, at a superficial glance, to be like some of our glory hunters, but he's not like them at all. And the superficial similarity must be explained another way. There must be some other motive that prompts God to want us to praise his glory, to speak words of truth, wonder, thanks and joy about him. Why would he want that for us? We talk about God loving. What could God give us to enjoy that would show him at his most loving? There's only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying, that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for our contemplation and fellowship and joy. To be supremely loving, God must give us what, we, what will be best for us and delight us most. He must give us himself. Well, so far, so good. But what do we do when we are given or shown something excellent, something 
we enjoy, something better than we could possibly hope for, we praise it. It is as if we do not enjoy something or someone fully unless we praise it or them. If we have a great holiday or a great meal, if the weather is delightful, if our work or study goes well, if someone loves us and we love them, we don't want to bottle it up, keep it to ourselves. Something wonderful needs to be shared. Lovers praise those they love. Readers praise their favourite books. Walkers praise the peace and tranquility and beauty of the countryside. Surfers praise the perfect wave. The English writer C.S. Lewis said, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And so it is with God. And that's what we need to grasp here. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. If we were not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate what we love and praise what we admire, our joy would not be full. God loves us and seeks the fullness of our joy so that we can really enjoy him. The the praise is the way that we can enjoy him to the full. I sing God's praises not only because he totally deserves it, but because it makes me feel good. And I hope it's the same with you. God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimate loving act. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, as Ephesians 1 says, he offers to us the only thing in all the world which can satisfy our longing. God is for us, and therefore our enjoyment of him is only ever complete when we praise him. I said at the beginning, you may not feel particularly saintly today, and by the end of the service, you can. And I hope you do. When we praise God out of our love for him and what he has done for us in Jesus, our joy is complete. And so is his. And the very best thing that we can do now is stand and praise our God. So please do that with me.